If today's guest expert is correct, get ready for a wild ride, folks. This analyst, whose bold predictions this year have so far proved surprisingly accurate, expects the market to zoom 20% higher from here and a spectacular blow-off top, to be then swiftly followed by a historically epic crash. If, as I, not only am I calling for a bust, I'm saying the potential is there because of the leverage I mentioned. The potential is there for this to be the largest global financial um, crisis in history. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Markets have become a lot more volatile recently, violently lurching up and down and are off nearly 5% from their all-time highs as of a month ago. A growing number of analysts are concerned that this is the start of a larger correction. This year's spike in inflation is proving a lot less transitory than the Federal Reserve expected. Supply chains remain badly disrupted. Economic growth is slowing, particularly in Asia where the failures of massive firms like Evergrande threaten to destabilize things further. And energy shocks are suddenly happening all over the world. It's understandable that more and more people are now asking, is the bull market over? Is a market correction imminent? No, says today's guest expert, David Hunter, or more accurately, not yet. David is chief macro strategist at Contrarian Macro Advisors. He expects a further final melt-up in the markets from here to be swiftly followed by a truly massive crash of up to 80%. We've been closely following David's aggressive market predictions this year, as they've so far mostly proven eerily accurate. So we're very fortunate to have him back on the program to give us the latest update on his current outlook. David, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure. All right, look, right before we dive into things, I just want to ask you the question I like to ask every guest expert at the start here. David, what is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Okay, well, that's that's an easy one for me as a contrarian because so many are turning negative. And as you said in your introduction, I do, I do think we are um, on the verge of a final leg up in this market. And I think it's going to be the most spe spectacular leg so far. So that's, that's saying a lot, uh, given that we have pretty much doubled the market in 18 months. And I think this last leg is going to be the steepest yet. And yeah, I see, as I've said countless times over the last six months, I see so many investors uh, with one foot out the door. Everybody looking for a top. Is the top in? Have we seen the highs? Are we you know, rolling over imminently? Or are we about to roll over? And I think that's just a sign that um, the sentiment is amazingly still skeptical and bearish at a time when we've had such a big run. It's almost unprecedented in terms of um, the, the wall of worry that's, that's still intact, even though we're, you know, we've doubled the market in, in such short time. Okay, well, David, right before, I, I wanna to get to your latest uh, status of your, your bold predictions that you've been making for the year. Um, but very quickly, can you just describe 
how your forecasting process works. Um, you know, what are the indicators in the inputs that you rely on most? Um, I know you take everything from fundamental, technical, sentiment, et cetera, but if you can just sort of explain the 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 soup uh, that you uh, that goes into your forecasting here. Yeah, it is a soup. I'm not sure I can do it do it justice, but I'll I'll just say this. You know, a lot of it comes from starting with a contrarian um, perspective, and particularly when you know it's like looking at a narrative that's out there. What's the popular narrative? Um, and if I am comfortable disagreeing with it, if I see enough things that are you know, flawed in that narrative, it makes it kind of a starting point to start looking for other things. But I start with really a top-down look at the markets, look at the economy, and go from there. Um, I do look at, uh, I do use technical analysis, look at technicals, I do uh, fundamental analysis, um, and I put a lot of, a lot of um, stress on or, or focus a lot on sentiment. Um, it's not always that I'm going to be contrary, but that certainly helps drive my work when I'm really at odds with others. Um, and then another thing that I do is really look at cross markets. So I'm looking for things below the surface that are going to, you know, in other words, I hear a lot of talk about is, you know, is the S&P topping out? Is the S&P about to go down 10% or 20%? looking at a lot of the sectors within the market and various kind of stock indicators or, or stocks as indicators. Um, if I don't see that picture, it's easy for me to then kind of step back and say, okay, what am I seeing in the averages? So cross markets make a lot of uh, impact on, on my forecasts. You know, what, what do I see in the bond market? What do I see in, in the dollar? What do I see in, in um, other uh, asset categories? Uh, and, and then it's putting it all together and basically with, you know, having been through uh, whatever it's been, five cycles in 48 years, it's kind of like um, just that all kind of melds in there and, and comes to a conclusion. And amazingly, it's, it's so much of it is conviction for me. If I don't have conviction, you're going to, you know, you're not going to see forecasts like I make. But when I have for, uh, conviction, um, it's easy. It just kind of, it, it's pretty easy to crystallize. Um, the, I, I do get accused of not being contrary sometimes because we're, you know, we're in the 39th year of a secular bull market and I'm still bullish. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of what, what time frame you're looking at. You, you mentioned conviction there, David, and, um, uh, I think that's a great word. So when you and I were speaking back in January, uh, you when the uh, S&P was around 3,700, uh, you were calling for uh, a run up to 4,500 in the S&P, which was a very bold prediction back then because the S&P had already had such a great run in 2020 off of the March flows. And uh, yeah, I got to hand it to you because, uh, you know, you had you, 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 you very you know, famously don't put um, exact timing on your calls, but you kind of had guided to sort of, it wouldn't surprise you to see that 4,500 target hit by mid-year and by Labor Day, we had hit it. So I, I really call that uh, that uh, prediction spot on. Um, of course, as we were as we were gaining on 4,500, you started ramping up what you thought the ultimate blow-off target was going to be. Last time I've seen it, you, you had it at around 5,000, um, maybe 5,000 plus. 
Um, so anyways, now here we are, we're in early October. Uh, the markets have become more volatile, as I said at the intro, um, such that they're about almost 5% off of their Labor Day highs. Um, so uh, are you still calling for as high as 5,000 or more from here? Yeah, my, my fourth quarter letter went out to subscribers yesterday and I raised my, and again, as you say, I raised my target in July to 5,000. So normally I'm not raising targets this quickly, but I raised my target again in this letter to 5,300 on the S&P, 42,000 on the Dow, I'm leaving my NASDAQ uh, and Russell 2000 um, targets at 18,000 and 2,900 respectively. But basically, again, looking at sentiment, looking at cross markets, looking at underlying sectors, what I see here is that this thing has legs that can run well beyond 5,000 on the S&P. So I'm not even sure 5,300, that's as comfortable as I can get or as far as I wanted to go and, and feel like I'm not just reaching. Um, but I do feel confident that we can get to 5,300, maybe 5,500. Um, and it very simply, you know, again, the narrative out there is far too negative too soon. Um, and and I, I grant you, uh, I do expect something awful, like you said, an 80% bear market coming after this. So I don't want to sound like I'm too cute and trying to think I can pick the precise top, et cetera, because I can't. But all I can tell you right now is the runway is a lot longer than I would have expected at this point in the year. And so we could get there all in the fourth quarter. It might spill into the first quarter. That's the part, you know, the market's in charge of that. But from everything I see, we've got an awful lot of sectors that are poised for much higher prices here. Okay, uh, and that is bold. We talked about your bold calls. That's, uh, if I'm doing my math, my napkin math right, that's 20% or so higher uh, in the next quarter or two, um, which, you know, I got to hand it to you. I, I rattled off all those different uh, kind of emerging or growing threats here, everything from inflation to supply chains to energy shocks, et cetera. So I will say, David, if this does come to pass, we're going to have to have you on here for a very well-deserved victory lap because that's a very bold prediction. Yeah, in the meantime, you can call me insane. That's okay. <laughs> well, I never would. I, Twitter might be a different story, um, and we'll get to that too in a moment. Um, but uh, but no, like I said, you, you've been uh, very bold, but very right so far this year in, in most cases. Um, I do want to get to the crash part of it, but, but before we do, um, you've given us sort of your, your calls for the indices in terms of how high you think they could go. Um, are, are there particular asset classes or sectors there, um, you know, uh, equity sectors, et cetera, that you think are going to be leading the charge from here? Yeah, for sure. I think you're going to see it. It's going to be, I think, a fairly broad rally. So I'll start with saying I think you'll see both large cap and small cap play. You know, the move in the Russell is probably going to be larger than the large cap um, indexes. So so I think you will see small cap come into favor here um, from a from a sector standpoint. I think it's also going to be rather mixed or broad in that I think you are going to get the fangs and, and uh, the semis and the so-called growth stocks playing at the same time that I think there's still a big run to come in the commodity sectors, in the industrials, 
I think you're going to see the opening up stocks have another big run here. One that looks particularly fascinating here to me is the airline stocks. Um, they are, you know, they've sold off a lot because of Delta this summer and all the concerns about what Delta was doing, what mandated vaccines were doing, and people getting more cautious about travel. All I can tell you is what I see in my, my work is that the airlines uh, could have a, a pretty blockbuster move here in the next, you know, three to six months. Um, so those, I think, certainly the autos look okay. Um, how home builders look like they're going to have another run to, you know, higher highs. Um, you know, as I said, the commodities, so copper, copper particularly looks strong here. I think you can see copper go from a $4 price. It's come to, you know, the price of copper on futures had come down from $4.90 to $4. I think you're going to see $6 copper and, um, and that should move the, the copper producers. Um, so it's, it's a broad rally. I mean, it's amazing that you can have so-called growth and, and cyclical move at the same time and both move strongly. Um, and I can only attribute that to the fact that, um, again, I'll go back to the narrative. The narrative kind of gets, I, I call it extrapolation fever. People get really excited based on the tape. So I'll, as an example, right now, um, oil is all the rage, right? Everybody uh, likes the oil sector. Everybody is forecasting much higher oil prices. Uh, it's good and bad. People are using that as a reason to be negative in the market, but it's also a reason to be positive in the oil sector. Um, I'm, I'm bearish oil. I think oil is topping out right here. Um, and I think the oil stocks to end oil are gonna be um, probably one of the few areas to underperform and, and start rolling over. Um, so what does that do to what does that do to the bond market? Everybody's decided rates are going up. As you know, I've been calling for a two and a half percent fifth uh, ten year um, and as as we move through this quarter into the first quarter. Um, and we've had a move from say 120 up to 155, almost 160. Now I think you could see a move back towards 125, 130 in a stair step step back on the way to that two and a half. So again, the narrative gets caught up in the tape and wants to extrapolate what's going on right now. Uh, I think you have to realize that these things don't move in a straight line and you can have for, for weeks at a time, a counter trend move that can help, for example, the FANG stocks and yet not cause problems for the cyclicals because you're, you know, you're gonna begin to have the cyclicals come out of their correction that's been in place since May. So there's a, there's a lot of that where I think, as I say often, investors have to learn not to think so linear in, in the way they see everything. You know, they want, they want to tie everything to one factor. So gold's only going to move if nominal rates go down or, um, you know, uh, the dollar's only going to move for X reason, you know, there's there's multi factors, and sometimes you have to be careful not to make it into some strong correlation with just one factor. Okay, um, you know, one. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned a few things though that you think may may not participate in in the general run up there, like oil and and bonds, perhaps, um, uh, or, or 
or sorry, uh, uh, yields. Um, so uh, two, two assets you didn't mention that I do want to dig into at, at, at some point in this conversation. Um, one of them, let's dig into now just briefly, but I presume the dollar is going to have to start reversing from here uh, as, as part of that move. Is that, is that a, give that same assumption? Yeah, I assume, and I don't know if it has to do that to have everything else work, but I, I do assume um, that the dollar is going to top out here and roll over. You know, we've been in this, what I call a counter trend rally since the beginning of the year. So it's been now nine months, nine plus months of the dollar rallying. After nine, 10 months last year of the dollar falling, even more dramatically. So I view this as counter trend. I think it uh, it pretty much took care of the overwhelming sentiment that the dollar was heading down when we entered this year. Uh, that was where traders were. Now most traders think the dollar is going up. So I think I think the counter trend rally's done its job. I suspect we're going to see the dollar roll, and I have a target of 80 on on DXY um, out over the next six months. Um, so that should help if I'm right, that should help, um, certainly help, um, you know, some of the commodity sectors, et cetera. Uh, well, it, it, it should, if it moves that much that quickly. Um, and that gets me to the second asset class, which was the precious metals. Um, uh, that's one of your bold calls that I think you've been making all year that, that some might say ha hasn't come true, at least not yet. And so um, my, my recollection is that you pretty much have gold and, and silver. Uh, you're forecasting them to, to, to double from here. I don't know what time frame that is. And for the miners to probably do even a little bit better. Um, do, you, do you still have that conviction here? Yeah, my convictions are strong. It's, it's again, this is the frustration for those that are traders. I probably would say um, the people on Twitter that, um, have the most trouble with me and how I forecast uh, our traders because they they want things to happen in a very short period of time. My forecasts aren't really driven by time. They're, as I say, they're cycle forecasts. Um, I do expect gold to go to 2,500 this cycle, so before the bust. I do expect silver to go to 50 uh, before the bust. And I've been saying that consistently for over a year. So, um, you know, I'm a broken record on it. Um, but what I, would, what I would argue is that you had a very strong leg up out of the March 20 bottom into early August of last year. And we've spent, an, it, it's been a surprisingly long consolidation. I certainly didn't expect anything like this, but it's still a sideways within a, a fairly broad sideways consolidation. It's not like you went back to the lows or, or that, you know, we were at 11 on silver at, in the March low, we're at 22. You know, we were at 1460 on gold in, in March of 2020, where, you know, we're at 1750. So yes, it's, it's disappointing to people that wanted to see it happen faster, but it really is, is nothing more than um, uh, what I like to say, which is markets are in charge, not us. And we may have expectations and desires, 
but ultimately the market can sometimes frustrate you because it's going to take longer to get to where you want it to go. Um, so not a cop out, just really recognizing that, you know, timing is not, as I say, trading calls, that's important if you're trading options or trying to do something within a certain time frame. But, you know, in a forecast, a cycle forecast, you know, it's, it's a much bigger picture. And I would argue people should step back and not look at a one or two year chart on gold or silver. Step back and look at a 20 year chart and you might see a very much more bullish picture. All right, well, thank you for that clarity. And um, uh, I, I do just wanna repeat back to make sure that I heard you correctly. Um, you know, you're, you're not making trading calls as of, hey, tomorrow X is going to happen. But in general, your expectation is, is we will see or, that. Or even, Pardon me? Yeah, I was going to say, or even in the next three or four months, you know, sometimes it, it, it feels like people's long-term concept is, you know, three, four, five months. And, you know, with cycles, sometimes you have to realize that that's not even a long time. Right, right. Um, but uh, the, the, the point of clarity I want I wanted to just try to reaffirm here is, is in your expectation, and we're about to talk to, about the bust or the crash in a second, you, you expect the precious metals to have their upward move before the, the big bust that you think is then coming? Yes. Okay, great. And very quickly, I just want to mention for folks that haven't seen it, um, I had a really great discussion yesterday with Jeff Clark, Gold Silver's precious metal analyst, about... Um, how relatively undervalued the precious metals miners are right now, not even just relative to, to um, the general market, um, you know, sort of a historic comparison of, of miner prices versus the S&P, but also to gold and silver prices themselves. Um, and David, I'd see you nodding a little bit as, as I was saying this, but do you, I'm just curious, do you, do you sort of share that, that uh, awareness or recognition that, that miners are especially relatively undervalued right now? Yeah, we're in a we're in an interesting period where the miners have the miner managements have gotten some religion because um, they were notoriously bad managers for decades. I mean, they just they get caught up in the, you know, the kind of speculative nature of, of searching for gold and silver. And, you know, they they would get excited at the wrong times and, and put capital, you know, put capital to work at a time when you know, the metals are about to roll over, et cetera. They, they've learned their lesson, it seems, and they're much more cash flow driven. They're much more disciplined about how they're running their businesses. And, and yet, ironically, it's a hated asset class right now, you know, and, and people, I think, are missing a real opportunity because I do think um, that we're on the verge of something. I, I think the metals represent the best um, relationship to what's coming in the world over the next decade, let's say. And yet, right now, people are looking backwards and all they care about is, gee, they aren't performing, so they must be dogs. Yeah, it's so interesting because if you look at the miners themselves, they've never been more profitable. They're kicking off more free cash flow than they ever have. Um, but anyways, if you want uh, a greater uh, dive into why, uh, watch that video uh, that we just released with Jeff Clark yesterday. Uh, all right, David, let's get to uh, the next big topic here, which is what comes after this meltup. And that is uh, a tremendous crash, according to you. Last time you and I talked, 
you were predicting a potential crash uh, somewhere between 65 to 80 uh, percent. Is that still the magnitude that you're expecting? Yes, very much so. All right. Well, for folks that maybe haven't watched our previous interviews, can you just sort of explain uh, why and, and why so deep? Sure. Yeah, I, I kind of put it in a formula where I'll say, you know, massive leverage. And by that, I mean um, 250 trillion plus in, in debt globally, plus what I think people miss when they talk about leverage is that there's quadrillions in notional value of derivatives. So that's leverage on the, on the financial system and leverage on the markets. Those two things in com combination are what I term as massive leverage globally. Um, you add that to um, the potential for policy mistakes um, because we are in a situation where inflation is breaking out and, um, and yet the economy is very fragile because of the pandemic. And so it's very easy. It's a tough job for central bankers right now, not just the Fed, but around the world to try to walk that fine line of how much money can we provide to keep us out of you know, the pain that's coming from the pandemic and yet not create an inflation situation that's gonna become you know, a raging fire because you keep pouring fuel on it. And it's a very tough thing to walk those two things combined, so what I call economic fragility and inflation, combined with the massive leverage, to me, is a disaster waiting to happen. It's almost inevitable that they're going to overstay their, their welcome on the inflation side, and then they're going to have to rapidly move to the other side and try to fix it. And, and unlike any other cycle we've had, the pandemic has made this, this cycle a much more fragile cycle. I mean, you you have um, you know you still have seven million people out of work in this country, um, and you still have you know people not paying their rent or their mortgage payments. Um, you know, have a lot of people living on the edge. Uh, you have the government handing out a lot of money uh, that will have to be paid for at some point. So there's a lot of reasons why I think I would call this a very fragile time. And yet the central banks have to try to figure it all out. And I think the likelihood is you're going to see a mistake, a misstep. And, and I think, again, we also have um, a system and financial markets that are at much more extreme ends than they've ever been so that they can reverse on the dime. So you have all those things all kind of put in the, in the mixing pot. And I think it argues that somewhere a mistake happens and when you know a policy mistake happens and when it happens the reversal i think will be swift and steep um so you know the hardest thing again i talk about linear thought processes the hardest thing for people is to wrap their head around well yeah but can't central banks just step right back in and stop it from happening you know if they see 20 percent down in the market won't they stop it i go you have you know you're underestimating that once this thing tops and rolls over, how difficult it's going to be for them. They're going to be between, be between a rock and a hard place because inflation doesn't get tamed in a couple of quick moves. Um, and yet the markets may be going the other way. And you know what are they going to do? They're going to have to choose between two very difficult situations. 
And I think either one leads us into a bust. Okay. Um, I just want to underscore a couple of things you mentioned there. Um, one, you used the term quadrillions when you were referring to derivatives. And for folks that don't know what a quadrillion is, that's what comes after a trillion. To be honest, it's a number so big, our brains really can't even accurately comprehend how big it is. Uh, and David is correct. I mean, when you look at the, the derivative exposure on top of all those the trillions of global debt, uh, it, it, it is in that sort of stratosphere and nobody knows what kind of conflagration um, is going to result uh, if the dominoes start falling there in the way that David just suggested. So um, as, as hard to wrap our brains around those numbers, I think David's very right in terms of the scale of the risk that's out there. Uh, David, you also, uh, I think the terms you used were swift and severe, uh, something like that. So on the swift side of things, um, do you expect when this crash happens for it to be, you know, violent and quick. Um, and the reason I'm asking that is, is, is it, I, I know you believe there's a, a dawn and, and, and you sort of a third phase where we, we have a, a nice prosperous uh, era that, that emerges from the crash. Uh, is the crash something that you see as being compressed in the time frame, or is this sort of a, a prolonged recessionary period that we could live in for years before we pick ourselves back off the map? Yeah, I'll, um, first I want to correct you. I am not saying that what comes out of the bust is a prolonged period of, or a, a period of um, kind of easy prosperity. All I say is that we will have a, a recovery cycle following it. Just like coming out of 2008-9, there are gonna be haves and have nots. There's gonna be a lot of suffering that will linger beyond the technical bust, um, but, we're going to have an inflationary-led, industrial-led recovery. So there will be sectors of the economy that will be roaring hot, um, but there will be other parts of the economy and other other aspects of the economy that won't be so so um, uh, you know won't, won't be a great time for some people. So so I don't want to give the impression that I think this this just is kind of a little blip along the way, and then we're on onward and upward. But that being said. Um, I would say, I think the odds are that this bust is contained pretty much within a, like a 12 month period. And I'm talking about from a standpoint of the statistical bust, the negative GDP part of the bust um, and the, you know, the involuntary liquidation cycle. I think most of that will be kind of within a 12 to 18 month time frame, probably closer to 12. Um, you know, the market, the bear market, I think, will be faster than 2008-9, uh, and particularly the, the bulk of it. The, in 2008-9, the biggest part of the bear market, even though it started in 2007 or topped in 2007, the, the bulk of the bear market was, you know, October or late September 2008 to March of 2009. So using that as kind of the bulk of a bear market, I think this one could happen faster than that. Um, so, you know, um, peak to trough, you could be down 80% and you could have it happen in, you know, six to nine months time frame. Okay, thank you. That is super, super helpful. And, and that's the main reason why we do these videos, David, is to let our viewers crawl in the heads of big thinkers like you and you're being as specific as you can. I really appreciate that. Um, all right, so I'm sure a question a lot of people have uh, on their minds are is, okay, David, 
uh, has has given us his forecast that that the general market could go about another twenty percent higher um, before this all rolls over. Um, when it rolls over, it's going to be swift and painful. Um, how can I avoid being collateral damage in that sixty-five plus market correction? Do you have a, a sense for for any asset classes that you think will be better insulated against the destruction, or in your mind, is it like just sort of a get to cash type of moment? Yeah, I think the bulk of assets, uh, everything from obviously stocks to um, junk bonds to corporate bonds to real estate to um, you know commodities. The bulk of assets, a bulk of the assets will be hit in the bust and hit hard. Uh, there are two assets categories that I would say, or two assets that I would say are probably um, likely to buck the trend, and that is U.S. Treasuries, uh, and that includes everything from T-bills out to 30-year bonds, um, and, and um, the U.S. dollar. You know, as you know, I'm as I said earlier, I'm looking for 80 on the DXY currently at um, 10 uh, at 94. So that's a pretty big drop. But from that 80, um, I expect in the bust, the dollar will, as it did in 2008-9, as it does typically, will become the flight to safety trade for the world when everything around them is is really falling apart and falling apart more than it has in. Um, in the last 80 years. So they're gonna be looking for a place where at least they have some semblance of confidence that it's gonna survive this. And I'm not sure the Euro gives you that. I'm not sure you know, the yen is gonna give you that. I think it's gonna be the dollar that's gonna capture people's, um, you know, the fear is gonna chase people there. So, so I think the dollar will go from 80 to potentially somewhere between 120 and 140 uh, during the bust. And so that's going up while, you know, the equity market could be dropping by 70 or 80%. That's a huge divergence. Um, and treasuries, I expect the, the 10 year to go to zero, maybe even negative rates in the bust. So even though I'm looking for two and a half on the 10 year in the next six months, um, I'm looking for from there two and a half down to zero. Uh, that's again a huge divergence from what everything else can be doing. Um, and uh, and the third year probably go from three percent down to say a half percent. So pretty big move in bonds. Um, you know, but even treasury, even T bills, at least they're not going to be. I you know I am not worried in this bust in this cycle. I am not worried about the U.S. government going bankrupt or going you know, defaulting on their debt. And very simply, the reason is because when things really do get rough here, um, and, and I'm actually saying we could see deflation. So you could go from an inflation problem now, and, and I think it's gonna worsen in the next six months, you could go from that to deflation during the bus because of how bad everything is gonna get. Uh, you know, it's very short-term deflation, not long drawn out, but um, deflation. And in deflation, or even low inflation, very low inflation, um, the Fed has almost infinite ability to print money. And they will print money like they have never printed it before, not even this last year and a half's printing. It, that will pale by comparison to what's coming. 
So if, if as I, not only am I calling for a bust, I'm saying the potential is there because of the leverage I mentioned, the potential is there for this to be the largest global financial um, crisis in history. Just the size of the leverage on the system and the missteps that I think could happen here uh, or the fragility that could lead to things unwinding quickly, we could have something bigger than 2008-9. And, and so the central banks are gonna be the only answer in the short run to try to keep us out of a total um, debacle where the financial system blows up and it's gone. I mean, that's when you're this leveraged, you got risk. And, the, and as I say, the central banks aren't gonna sit around saying, well, if I do this, it might mean inflation two years from now. They're gonna say, I gotta do what I have to do to save the system, right? So, so I, I think the easiest part of my forecast is a prediction that we will see the central bank balance sheets grow to levels we could never imagine prior prior to this. So maybe it's 20 or 30 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet and proportionally something similar to that around the world. All right. Um, wow, David, uh, you, you don't miss words. You don't pull your punches. And uh, when you go big, you go big. Uh, largest global financial crisis in history. Um, you, you know, you see in the 10 year go from your prediction of two and a half to zero, um, 30 year going from 3% to half a percent or, you know, close to zero. Uh, those are huge moves dollar from 80 up to perhaps as high as 140. Um, and uh, well, look, uh, you, you're not alone in thinking that and, and really what you're describing uh, in terms of uh, the strengthening of the treasury market and the dollar in this type of kind of global contagion uh, is very similar to Brent Johnson's uh, dollar milkshake theory, which folks, if you want to get a deep dive into that, I interviewed Brent about a month ago. You can find that on the channel too. Um, David, you, you do seem uh, similar to many of the other guest experts that I've um, uh, interviewed here who all believe that there is um, uncomfortable probability of, of some sort of painful correction coming. Uh, you probably predict the deepest correction out of all of them, uh, but then to be followed by uh, central bank uh, inflationary policy, the likes of which that we just haven't even begun to see yet. Um, and it sounds like you just did a great job of, of, of describing that. So um, uh, let's then now move towards the crunch. The central banks then just completely go hog wild. Um, with trying to restoke inflation because we've just had this massive deflationary crunch. Um, uh, let's talk about that era. Um, are there particular sectors, asset classes, et cetera, that you would want to be positioned in for that, you know, tsunami of liquidity? Yeah, I, um, I would say this, this is where 48 years of doing cycles and, you know, I was, I was running pension money for the first half of my career. So, um, you know, paid a lot of attention to where we were in cycles, et cetera. This is where that pays off is I learned long ago through observation that. We hope you've been enjoying this discussion with macro analyst, David Hunter. The interview continues over in part two where David explains the investment climate he calculates will follow his predicted 80% market crash, including the sectors he thinks will benefit most during that period of recovery. 
To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below, or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to hit the like button and then click the subscribe button below if you haven't already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. It only takes a second and it really helps us out as the more subscribers this channel has, the more big name experts like David we can attract onto this program in the future. And if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio with the risks and opportunities that David has highlighted here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with David Hunter. Thank <music> you.